0: This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That means 20 years of Texas art coverage, 20 years of publishing writing from across the state, and 20 years of showing the world all Texas has to offer. Since our publication is a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to help support our coverage, you can make a one time gift or become a sustaining donor by visiting glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's show. Hello, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck, and this isn't a traditional Art Dirt, and that we're joined by a special guest today. Uh, do you want to take a minute and introduce yourself?
1: Uh, I do. Uh, thank you, Brandon. My name is Mark Menjivar, and I am an artist based in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm also a professor at Texas State University in the studio art area within the school of art and design.
0: Yeah. So Mark, we're really happy to have you on today. Uh, One of the reasons that we're talking to you this week specifically is that uh, today when this podcast is being launched uh, at the end of September of 2021, you are launching an artist, I guess artist residency project uh, on our website, on glass tires website. Uh, It's something that we've been working on. It's been in the works for months months it has been yeah and we we're going to go in and we're going to talk a little bit about that but first i want to kind of give you a chance to talk about your practice a little bit about like what you're focused on you know just for anyone out there who may or may not be familiar with you and your work
1: first off i just want to say like thanks it's been really great working with you and with seth a big shout out to him uh, for all the work that he has done uh, on this project seth But Yeah, it's been a really great process of working over these weeks, but I mentioned I'm based here in San Antonio, uh, an artist, my background is actually in social work, so that's what my undergraduate degree is in, and a lot of times I like to say that I fell out of the field of social work into the arts through primarily through photography. Um, so I, I feel like I talk about my art practice in so many different ways. So one, I could start off by talking about always kind of keeping one foot in the the world of photography and one foot as far out of it as possible into all of these other realms. But another way that I talk about my art practice too is that uh, primarily what I do is it's as uh, I activate archives, and sometimes those archives um, already exist and they come either from institutions or from private individuals. But a lot of times those archives are created in collaboration with individuals or with communities as well. And I'm just really trying to find ways to activate them. I often ask myself like, how can we turn an archive inside out? So instead of somebody having to enter into an archive, maybe like show ID to get access to it, Like, how can you turn that out and make it more accessible to people so that they can potentially have a meaningful encounter with the things that are located within it? I was
0: familiar with your work before you and I actually met, I think, at a Cam Houston exhibition, you know, a number of years ago. Um, And I had always been drawn to your work just because I'm kind of like an archive. I'm a secret archive nut. Like I love organizing and I love preservation and I love histories in whatever form that those things take. your work, I mean, it has the photography element. So in some ways it looks like quote unquote traditional art, but in a lot of ways it it doesn't like a lot of your work ends up manifesting in publications or online, you know, database type website histories. Or, um, I was wondering if you could talk about kind of some of your early work that you think still shapes,
1: Uh, the way that you work now. Definitely. And, you know, I actually appreciate that you mentioned that and bring that up. I think that my work, sometimes some people engage with, they're like, really, is this art? You know, and I can remember even being at a talk years back and somebody asked, they were like, are you an artist, a journalist, a social worker? They're like, I don't mean to offend you. And I was like, no, no offense taken whatsoever. I actually love um, kind of spanning all of that. And often I'm trying to think about, you know how can a body of work or a project have multiple entry points and then also multiple exit exit points as well? And I think that some of the projects that you know, for me, that I mean, the very first project that I worked on, starting back in like 2007, I really it was 2006 that I first picked up a camera with any kind of intentionality to create um, something with that or explore the world with it. And I started off by photographing the interiors of people's refrigerators. I had been exploring food issues uh, for a number of years and kind of had landed on this quirky way of of exploring people's lives, but also food insecurity and hunger inside of our country. And so I ended up photographing, you know refrigerators in over thirty cities across the country or communities. And as that work started to exhibit, um, I it was really natural for me just to reach out to different organizations, whether they were food justice organizations or food banks or um, farmers or community gardens, and invite them to collaborate in some way. And I started to notice that at a certain point, I started to care more about what was happening inside of the gallery space or museum space than I was um, what was happening on the walls. It didn't didn't mean that I didn't care about the images anymore, but I was more interested in finding more energy um, with that. And so that was a real shift inside of my practice. But I think that that first um, project for me, those refrigerators was, you know, this typology and it began to kind of become this growing archive um, that I started to then work with and then find ways to activate that out. Uh, another project, um it came after that it's called the luck archive and i essentially began i found these four four leaf clovers in the between the pages of an old book that got me really interested in the concept of luck and how luck intersects with uh, belief culture superstition and tradition so i started talking to people about that and people started giving me you know all sorts of like weird objects and things were really meaningful to them there's so much superstition that people have. I mean, I can imagine what you would have found
0: just in terms of sports jerseys, family heirlooms, just the random things that people would carry around with them, the random. Did did that project go also go into like the ritualistic elements or was it only just kind of like the physical elements?
1: Yeah, I totally went into the rituals as well, things that people do. And I think that over all those years, I found that there was really like two ways that people talked about it talked about luck, uh, whether they believed in it or not. Right. And one is like descriptively, right. We use it as a way to describe things that didn't did or didn't happen to us. Like I was, oh, I'm so lucky, but then also prescriptive. Right. So it's like, oh, do this. Um, to gain good luck or don't do this for bad luck. And it, in a lot of ways, uh, they're like these mini performances that we do every single time, right? Whether it's putting on a shoe, um, like your left shoe first, or making a wish at 11, 11 or not walking under a certain item or walking around another. So there is this performative element that I found in, inside of that project, which I just really fell in love with.
0: I feel like some of it becomes habit, At some point also, like, I I think, I think I got this from my parents, but you know, whenever you say something in order to be uh, superstitious, you knock on wood, right? That's, that's, and I don't, I don't believe that knocking on wood quells whatever bad thing would happen or that you're saying you don't want to happen. But at this point, I just do it purely out of habit. It's just, and I do it regularly it's it's not something yeah it's it's not something that's rare it's not something that i even think about it's just like i'll say something well it's like well we're all doing okay you know yeah like knock on wood we're fine um and it's just you know it's it's not believing in luck it's not anything like that it's out of like
1: learned behavior almost it becomes this routine that you do. And I also, you know, I think this is one of the first projects where I really started to recognize that one of the things that I, a question that I'm still interested in is where do we locate meaning in our lives, you know? And, um, and so it is those little moments, those things that we have and what we hope for, what we're wishing for, we wanting to avoid. Um, and so that is one of those questions that I, that I think I really began to pay attention to, um, inside of that project.
0: I didn't know, going back to your uh, series of refrigerator photographs, I wasn't super active on the scene whenever you came out with those. So I don't know if I realized the kind of holistic like food bank element and the almost, I guess, do do you call your work social practice or does that, how do you feel about that term? Because I didn't realize whatever, You know, the interactive or the the larger components outside of the series of photographs, thinking about it now and hearing you talk about it, it totally makes sense that you would have gone that route and begun to incorporate things like that. But I'm just familiar with the series of photographs as a series of photographs.
1: So I actually have an MFA in social practice from Portland State University, but I had, so I had an exhibition in Portland, I think this was in 2009 of the Refrigerator Project and I partnered with all these organizations and it's funny because at the opening, Harold Fletcher came with his students, and they were like, "Oh, hey, you know, do you know what so, what social practice is?" And I was like, "I have no idea what that term even means." And they're like, "Oh, well, you're you're doing it. Like, this is the kinds of projects that it is." And it's funny because I I was like, I didn't I don't come from an art historical context, right? I mean, I was studying social work. I didn't grow up going to museums, and so for me, that was like. Um, kind of opening a door to this um, strand that had been happening in contemporary for a very very long time but was kind of being formalized at that point and that led to a relationship with Harold um, and with Jen de los Reyes and some other people that were at that program and then I decided to go back to grad school so I'm not somebody that um, like I don't say I'm a social practice artist or that uh, social practice is my medium I think there's so many different names for the type of work whether there's new genre public art or socially engaged art practices that people have been using to describe this kind of work but I tend to like to break down the definition right because social practice is about participation it's about collaboration it's about context it's about all of about authorship it's about all of those things um, that go in and so I tend to like to think about those really as tools um, that I that I use in my practice. And sometimes a project may lean um you know more towards one or another. And even like the term collaboration, like a lot of what I do isn't necessarily like a collaboration where it's working with a group of people and saying, okay, what are we going to do together? And then something organically springs up. But a lot of times what I'm doing is developing a, like a conceptual project structure and then inviting people to participate inside of that. So if you look at it, like collaboration and participation are spectrums, right? And so if you look at it on that spectrum, this, a lot of what I do is, is even more guided in a way, but I, I do think of the word invitation a lot in my practice, right? It's like saying, Hey, this is what I'm up to. This is, why I'm doing it um, and I would love to invite you to participate inside of this as well. I'll ask you in a second
0: about the collaborative aspect of your work like in Borderland Collective which is a little collaborative of yourself and other like artists uh, but the collaborative aspect of working with the I guess you could call it the general public. You know, We'll get into that a little bit with this project that uh, you've worked on with us for Glass Tire. It's very much a general public or you know, anyone who knows about it, which is more or less the general public. Um, but that's such an interesting way. I mean, you're not the only artist to do this, but at the same time, just trying to work with the general public in any capacity is a challenge into itself because introducing something to people is never the easiest thing, especially when it's a slightly more conceptual idea of an art project. Um, but, But at the same time, I feel like one of the reasons you do it, correct me if I'm wrong, is just that it lends itself to the most interesting
1: results. Totally. And I think that, and it's not even just the interesting results, but it's interesting interactions, right? And I think it's taking... You know, everyday things that we encounter, whether it's the concept of luck or security questions that we're talking about or refrigerators um, or everyday items and looking at it, you know, maybe from just a little bit of a different angle or putting it in a context to um yeah to think about it a little differently and often sometimes what i'm doing is it's not even changing the context but what does it mean when you do something a hundred times or you do something you look at 500 different examples of something um and then you know you begin to see differences and similarities and you find these places where your own story your own life begins to rub up against those things and um, and that's where the, the meaning is created so often like i joke sometimes and it's like uh you know just find these really simple little things and then do it multiple multiple times with as many people as i can in as diverse of situations as as i'm able to do it in
0: well i i want to ask you a couple questions about uh some of your other projects but before that here is a quick word from one of this week's art dirt sponsors This week's podcast is sponsored in part by CASETA, the Center for the Advancement and Study of Early Texas Art, which is hosting a 2021 virtual fall forum celebrating early Texas art on Friday, October 1st and Saturday, October 2nd. The free program will feature a variety of lectures, tours, and conversations with leading scholars and curators revolving around early Texas art. To see a complete list of events and to register for the free program, please visit www.casseta.org. And we are back. So Mark, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is uh, a project that's kind of, it's happened in the last couple years, if I'm not mistaken. And I actually, I think even before I knew about this project or before that I knew it was your project, I saw um, like a wheat pasted poster about it in Marfa, Uh, but it's a project called Blackwell. And it's about the history of the Blackwell school,
1: right? It is. Yeah, definitely is. And this is a project that I did in collaboration with Borderland Collective, which is directed and led by Jason Reed, who's a dear friend of mine and a colleague, also at Texas State. Um, Borderland Collective is a collective of individuals, and it varies by each project who's a part of that collective. And we often use the term collective not to be restrictive of who's in, but really an opening up of that. Almost anybody can be part of the collective when we're working on projects together. So the, the Blackwell project was, it's it, we worked on it for most of 2018, but it opened in spring of 2019 and ended up going in, it was a year long project. But if you've ever been out to Marfa, um, you can't uh, ignore the influence of, of Donald Judd on the landscape on that town. And I love it. I've been out to Marfa over 15 times over the past probably 15 years, at least, um, had been going out for a long time. But um, what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, there was a thriving community in Marfa before Judd even got there. And one of the harder aspects of the community is that um, uh, uh, Marfa was segregated. And so the Blackwell School was actually the school that was for the Hispanic population of Marfa from, you know, the 1890s until about uh, 1965. And it was a harder part of the history of that community. Well, the um, many of the alumni from the Blackwell School and current community members have formed a, a um, uh, the Blackwell School Alliance, which is really to honor and to celebrate the history of the Blackwell School, but also the history of Marfa that exists, and so. We were um, invited. Jason and I, Borderland Collective, were invited to begin a project with them in 2018. And the first thing that we said is, "Well, let's sit down with the your you know the board of directors who are made up primarily of people who have who were graduates from the Blackwell School um, to talk about it." And in that meeting, we ended up um, learning that they had an image archive and they also had a, an archive of oral histories, but there just wasn't a lot of organization around that. So really, all that we did was work. With um, the Blackwell School community and the community of Marfa to organize those images, to organize those oral histories, and then we did an open call to the community to add to that, right? To add to the work that was already existing in that place. And then, so again, right, building this archive. And then the way that we found to activate it was by doing these very large, you know, mural size images. Some of them were over 15 feet in length, and installing them in 13 locations around town. And then each one of them was also accompanied accompanied by a QR code that you could scan and you could hear people um, talking about the, you know, that location that were there. We also did more abstract pieces, uh, found some like historical recordings of the school band playing in like the 70s and, um, you know, reading of lists of names that were there. And then along with that, there was a newspaper that was produced that kind of encapsulated the whole project. And I think we printed like 2,500 of them, 3,000 and distribute them through, throughout the community.
0: Whenever you go into a new community and do a project like this, how do you kind of think about not just localizing it? Because something like the Blackwell School is very obviously localized to Marfa. You know, the issue of a segregated school is universal, frankly, within America, but this school specifically is um, specific to Marfa. But how do you go in with the concept of Uh, of deciding how to approach the project in the best way that serves that community, because I know that's also, you know, call yourself a social practice artist or not, that's always one of the hardest things to consider to make sure that you're playing it well in the sandbox you know
1: yeah and I think it's always being aware one of my own privilege um, is being aware of not wanting to drop into a community and just make work or be extractive right of taking things out or coming in with these big ideas and so I think it always um, you know Jason and us in Borderline Collective we're often talking about posture right how do we enter into a place with that and so when you enter in in trying to um, not just listen but also learn from people realizing that like this banking model of education where you just open up a brain and insert knowledge right doesn't we're not interested in that and so we're always learning from other folks and then we kind of have like a Toolkit in a way right of ways that we work or things that we're interested in um but that are then available for that project or for working with people but it's listening and then trying to identify what's already happening in a community or maybe already in a place and then trying to like join in that and then bringing some expertise or bringing some tools in a way and then um also i think it's like important to like have authorship of a project right, to own the ways that you're working in communities so it is about us bringing ideas and bringing things but it's always trying to provide um, room for feedback or room for a um, a project to take to to shift and change uh, whenever i'm working with projects where there's oral histories or there's voices that are included and people are participating it's making sure that those people know That right, trying to explain uh, contemporary art context to them as much as you can, but some some folks don't even have any um, real experience with that. Um, So trying to share that as much as possible, right, but then also providing an out for people right and saying hey if you don't want to participate at this project at any point of it, we can try to pull that part of it, um, you know, fr- from the project or remove that, and we definitely have had people do that. And I think it's like, if I ever participate in something, I want to have the ability to um, to not be involved anymore, if that's what how I feel, and so people have that right and, and can choose to do that.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, I, I would imagine the same kind of principle applied um, to one of your most, or maybe your most recent project, which was KBART. Um, which we've we've been running a series uh, about this project on Glass Tire, but it's the Bartlett Project, which um, was uh, kind of organized by ICOSA, which is an art space, art collective in Austin, um, curated by Leslie Moody Castro. Uh, you can search for the Bartlett Project on Glass Tire if you want to learn more about it. We'll also put uh, links to uh, pieces about the Bartlett Project in the related readings for this podcast on our website. Um, but you kind of created like a, essentially a radio station, for lack of a better term, uh, for the Bartlett Project as your piece or contribution to the Bartlett Project. Um, and I would imagine a, a lot of the same considerations that you just spoke about, you know, went into this being a radio station that's comprised of like oral histories and interviews and readings and all of those types of things. Would you talk a little bit about that project?
1: Yeah, I did. And so, yeah, you just mentioned a bar. It was a low power pirate radio station that I created that existed for, you know, six weeks. There's now a, a kind of an, an online version of it. But, you know, when, it first, when the Bartlett project first started out, I learned that there was a, you know, 100 plus year newspaper archive of the community. And so the original idea I had was I was like, oh, I was like, let's take you know, find small stories that happened, you know, um, in the in that are described in the newspaper, and then invite people in town or visitors to reenact those out on the streets of, of the town. And there were going to be video pieces that were going to then be displayed in the windows. But uh, uh, what i realized pretty quickly is that there weren't a ton of people out there and i started also when i was first going out i started i was driving by the willowbell nursing home and this is like in kind of the peak of the of the pandemic last year and so there wasn't really a way to get in but i just kept thinking about the amount of stories and the local history that existed in within the the lives of the people that were there so they kind of landed on this idea of creating a yeah a pirate radio station that broadcast oral histories of people living in the nursing home but only broadcast over a mile and a half radius in the town, so that you would have to be in the town of Bartlett to hear those stories. You mentioned earlier, right, that it wasn't just oral histories, but it was the activation of historical markers that were on their activations of the newspaper. And I think those parts got introduced in because anytime you spend, um, you know, time in a community, especially in a rural area, right, there's a complicated narrative that exists there, and the racial segregation that existed in Blackwell exists existed and still exists in many ways in the town of Bartlett and so I've by introducing those historical markers and these other stories from the newspaper I found it was a way to begin to complicate the narrative a little bit right that it wasn't just something that's like all nice and neat and packaged because history or archives are really nothing is that way right it's never like oh point a and then point b there's all of these intersections that happen in between it so yeah and You know, I love that project I've long had an interest in, in radio and transmission and um, that really began with like ham radio uh, from years back and then also um, synthesis and how you take sounds and you can process them. And so this seems just like a perfect opportunity to create this uh, pirate radio station. Out in the middle of uh you know rural texas where there wasn't going to be a lot of station bleed because it's totally illegal to do that um against fcc regulations but it was totally worth it um to do it for me in this context
0: you mentioned um your interest in people and individual stories as a part of the bartlett project and that leads me to the project that you're doing for glass tire Uh, or the project you have done for Glass Tyron that will continue to grow as more and more people uh, look at it. Um, So this is a project we've been working on kind of since the early part of 2021. Uh, It's called Security Questions. And um, you want to give a little description of what it is?
1: I do, yeah. Um, You know, really, the project goes back 11 years. Uh, I look back from when I first started collecting security questions, and it was the first one that I could find was in 2010. And you may hear like, what what do you mean by collecting security questions? And it was really any time that I um, have gone to like a like a website that you have to enter in a security question, like whether it's a bank or creating a a new username or account on something, you often get these questions that pop up. And what I've been doing is just taking screenshots of those and saving them into a folder. And I think what originally drew me to them is that right? You like usually you encounter them and you're you're going someplace else, right? You're trying to get an account to do something, so you're like, oh okay. Like if I forget my password, you know, like what are these things? And you don't think about them that much. You just type in your answer and move on. And I remember being struck, you know, ten years ago. I was like, I was like, oh my gosh! I was like, this question is actually like really meaningful to me. And if I think beyond just the one-word answer, like there's a lot of emotion and meaning in in that response for me. And it's also interesting, right? 2010, we were, you know, still at the the back end of the economic crisis that we were experiencing back then, and so there was also this kind of embedded thing of like, how safe do I feel? And our financial institutions were crumbling around us, and so there was. But it was also one of those things where I didn't necessarily know where it was going. I, I knew that I was interested in it, being drawn to it, so I just kept collecting them, um, and that has led to you know, over 165 security questions from that. And so for this project, right, what we've done is we created this like kind of, um, you know, humorous drop down list of all of these questions. And people can submit their answers to it, which is, you know, usually it's our, you know, you just submit a one word answer, but then there's another box below that, that people can enter in, you have know, response to tell me more about that. And some of the, some of the stories around the one word answers are hilarious. Some of them are deeply uh, sad. Uh, some of them are very emotional from it, but what I, I just love that we can all in some way probably relate to these, whether it's something that's positive or negative and i think that the backstories to them are really fun and really meaningful and i think it's kind of hits on some of those things i was talking about earlier of like where do we locate meaning in our life and um and it's there's right meaning when we read other people's stories but also when we think about our own and share them All anonymously, by the way, right? So no one's. I know that there's some things out there, like on Facebook, that people told me, like people are trying to fish for people's information for to hack and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, this this isn't an elaborate scheme by Mark to to fish for personal information to hack everyone's accounts. Mark, one of the things about this project also is I I'm always I I love just kind of surreal absurdity, and I'm always looking for humor in art wherever I can find it, even if it may not supposed to be even maybe if it isn't supposed to be there um and there's just certain elements elements of this like exactly like you're talking about there uh, some of these questions are so genuine and so deep that the more you think about them the the, the more valuable they are to you things like what city did you get married in what city mm-hmm. did you meet your spouse in um you know of course all of the normal ones like grandparents names or whatever but then there's things like what is your least favorite power tool
1: exactly i love that one
0: you know like what kind of i i just i'm picturing the type of person that would out of a, a list of 10 security questions you know and you have to choose 3 of them would be like i'm going to do this one because i hate circular saws yeah <laughs> you know it's like this is this is the thing that i'm going to remember about myself forget my paternal grandfather's home city i'm going to choose What's your least favorite power tool? Because I hate circular assaults. Like, and just that coupled with, you know, these kind of funny questions, coupled with just the absurd like scroll of this list. there's there's a lot of inherent humor mixed in with the sincerity. I feel like in this project.
1: Oh uh, well, and I think that that word absurd is the perfect uh, description of some of it, especially with the drop down. Um, but you know, another thing that I think about a lot in my projects, especially when working with archives, is use value right? And so how can something be useful? And so like, even like with the luck archive, right? You look at this like archive of over 500 objects, stories, or photographs around the concept of luck. And you're like, that's totally absurd. Like there's no use in that. But if you like, if you like stake have like really believe in luck right you like your whole life revolves around that like oh my gosh like what an incredibly useful archive to have right because you're like oh i didn't know about all these things and so even with this this one as well right there's a use value of like institutions or organizations that are trying to help you 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 know uh recover something if you lose it like a password right there's that use value um but then also the the use value of you can actually use these questions like i've actually like use these questions like strangers on airplanes and with friends, uh, my buddy, Adam Mosier, who's an artist based in Portland early on. When I started collecting these, we would just like, like, like over drinking beers, we would just like kind of start talking about them. I've used them on date nights with my partner, Elizabeth, right? There are these, it's this fun way to get to know people. It's kind of this like absurd, absurd thing in it or being like, Hey, like here's a whole bunch of like security questions from my bank that I learned the other day, like, uh, you know, Let's talk about uh, what the name of your first employer was, right? And then twenty minutes later, you're laughing about all these shared stories that exist inside of you know uh, shitty first jobs. So well,
0: the thing is, it's also these really basic questions that you may not otherwise talk about, right? Like maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just odd, but it's like, what's my what's my partner's favorite color? Like I don't know, is it? bright neon orange is it is it a deep blue like what's her favorite sea animal like i don't know what her favorite sea animal is you know or what uh you know just some of these basic things that if you know a person really well you know them really well and you kind of know the big things about them you well you know the big things and the little things right you know their insecurities you know their flaws you know what they like you know what they dislike you may not know the first concert that they attended you know, it's it's these little basic things, which like in a like it's weird in a sense, they help, you know, a person in a sense, they're very surface level. But like you said, they can lead to something more. It's like what concert did they first attend? Well, Tom Petty, because their parents were very into classic rock because they grew up in the 70s and then et cetera, et cetera. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah.
1: Or even, you know, where were you, at, um, you know, on 9-11? Right. So that's another one that's in there. Or where were you on January 1st, 2000, right? When we thought the world was going to end, right? Because computers couldn't, didn't have enough digits or whatever it was, you know, from that. And I think that there's, yeah, there's, it leads you to those moments where, you know, you're laughing and then you're crying and then you're like, um, and even, You know, it has the potential, this is something I think about often in projects, right, to bring up traumatic events as well, right? And I I like that the project has that built, or these questions have that built into it, right? That it can kind of take you on this, like, uh, roller coaster, and you can choose to get on it or not, or um, be fully invested in it or not um, in your answers. You can give a one-word response, or you can write uh, a whole paragraph, uh, right, about, about the details behind the answer.
0: Also just how failable these questions are, because not only like you just said, you know, if if you've been divorced and remarried, you've been married in two cities possibly, but also just what, uh, you know, what's your favorite ex? Well, if you made your account when you're 20 years old and now you're 43, that's probably changed by this point, or it's likely to have. So, you know, besides the kind of almost humorous aspect of this is something you chose and yet you may not remember what it was. So you could be locked out of your account. Um It just, it, they very specifically denote like moments
1: in time in a very interesting way. I also think it's interesting, you know, I've shared this with a few people and, you know, some people they get it and they're like, ha ha ha. And then, and then I see them later on. They're like, whoa, that was actually like super deep, you know? And so, and some people, you know, they fill out one answer. And then I talked to somebody the other day, they were like, I just couldn't stop answering. They were like, I just kept going down and down and down, you know? And then 15 questions later, they're like, I need to step away. <laughs> you know? So um I like that. There's, you know, you can engage with it. And then also, right. It's not even there's, Kind of two parts to this, right? There's the inputting side where you can share your own, but then you can also go and just scroll through other people's responses. You can select the question that's there and then read um the, the answers that are popping up that the people are sharing. And I love that when we first started talking about this project, we were like, Well, how long do we do this for? You know? And um, I love the length of a year. I've done a lot of projects for a year, whether that was Um, working with high school students around capital punishment, or I wrote down everything I ate for a year as part of that refrigerator project, um, kind of weirdly, but but also that this will be open and available to the public to participate within for a year, and then we will switch it to just the responses and kind of this online archive that exists.
0: Yeah, so for those of you listening, we'll put a link to this uh, this project by Mark in the podcast description. Uh, we'll also put it on Glass Tire's website in the post for this podcast. Um, it's gonna be open for submission by you throughout uh, September of 2022. So if you go on this, you can answer these security questions. You can view other people's responses. Um, if a security question does not have a response yet, uh, we highly would encourage you uh, to answer it so that it does. Um, even if it does already have a response, answer some of these because they're it's actually a really kind of thoughtful process to do. And uh, I'm sure just as you're nosy with other people's responses to try and figure out what they would be, uh, other people would love to know what your response would be.
1: <laughs> and it's funny, you know this is uh, this is like the the security questions kind of 1.0 version of it, but I had originally thought of this project being, a video project where I was going to take to the streets and do street interviews, like with a, you know, with a big, you know, handheld microphone and a, a camera in my other hand, and just interview people on the streets about what their responses were from it. But I think that you know the virtual space and COVID and everything um, has led it to be this. But I, I love thinking about different ways that this will be activated out, or there'll be other iterations of it that'll happen. Uh, in the future. So yeah, well, and I love it that, you know, for me too, like you can think about a project or conceptualize a project or work on it in the studio, and you're only thinking about it in um, maybe a few ways. But every time a project gets made public for me, I'm always learning new things. And someone will say like, oh, have you ever thought of this? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, no, I haven't. You know, like, I can't believe that I was this close to it for that long and maybe missed that, that part of it. But I think that um, I always look forward to that, right, of how things shift and change and grow and lead you down these other little paths once a project is is out in the world
0: and with that uh i think that's going to do it for art Dirt this week mark thank you for coming and talking about your practice and also about this project that you've done with us uh, it's been a pleasure working with you and we're very excited to launch it to the public
1: Thank you, Brandon, and it has been so much fun to work on it. I love it that for the past—I think every month for the past like four or five months—we were like, "We're going to launch it this month. We're going to launch it this," and then we've iterated different ways. And a huge shout out to Seth Mittig for all of his coding work on the back end and making this crazy database uh, to hold all of these responses.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times you don't realize how much work goes into something until you have to uh, make it happen. So, <laughs> shout out to Seth for making this project happen essentially and with that thank you all for listening this week we'll be back two weeks from now with another art dirt and until then go fill out some forms and questions (laughs) and participate in art
1: exactly thank you
0: Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Cassetta, the Center for the Advancement and Study of Early Texas Art, which is presenting their 2021 virtual fall forum celebrating early Texas art on Friday, October 1st and Saturday, October 2nd. The free virtual program will feature a variety of lectures, tours, and conversations with leading scholars and curators revolving around early Texas art. To see a complete list of events and to register for the free virtual program, please visit www.casetta.org. That's C-A-S-E-T-A dot This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradette. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.